This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, a Spectator's daily political podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Fraser Nelson. So we had the news this morning uh, that Julian Assange's extradition from the UK to the US has been approved by the Home Secretary. James, what comes after this? Are we expecting an appeal? Uh, I think an appeal is guaranteed from the Assange team. They've got 14 days to make it, and I think they will. I think it was always highly likely that the UK was going to extradite Julian Assange to the US, given the national security implications of what WikiLeaks did. And I think also the kind of indiscriminate nature of the leaking makes it harder, I think, to argue that this was kind of classic kind of whistleblower stuff. This is this is not the kind of Pentagon Papers. And it was done in such a way that I think you can say there was no consideration given to what some of the real world consequences of his actions were going to be. James, what do you make of the government's decision on this? Because there's been some surprising figures actually coming out in support of Assange in recent months, effectively saying you may not like him, but uh, in terms of what this case represents, it sets a dangerous precedent. I think I would have more sympathy with that argument if the Assange leaking had not been so blanket, so indiscriminate. This wasn't an attempt to highlight a particular issue or, you know, it was just, we are going to leak this because we can. And I think it is the indiscriminate nature of this that means I think it's harder to say that this is journalism than if it had been more thought through and more aimed at uncovering or revealing a particular set of stories rather than this this, this rather indiscriminate approach that WikiLeaks took. Now, Fraser, this week, one of the stories that has been gaining some attention, perhaps not as much attention as it would have uh, done if it was announced a few years ago, is Nicola Sturgeon's push for you guessed it, Indie Ref 2. In your Telegraph column, you write about this. Why do you think it is that it's meeting such a muted response? Well, because nobody's quite sure whether to take her seriously. The polls show that only a third of Scots want a referendum in her time frame of the next three years. So even that nationalist supporters don't think there should be one. Um, the polls are still pretty tight. It's about sort of 48, 52, um, same as it was in the actual 2014 referendum. But there are so many important questions Nicola Sturgeon now isn't asking. And top of the questions that she's avoiding is what Brexit does to this. Brexit would mean that if she wanted to join the EU, an independent Scotland, then there'd have to be a hard border with England. And we've seen in Northern Ireland just how pernickety the EU can be on all the checks they would demand. And now, the goods and imports and exports of goods and services from Scotland, something like 70% of them are with England. So this is would be a far bigger disruption than Brexit would be. It would be, in the words of one of Nicola Sturgeon's own advisors, Brexit times 10. Now, this isn't to say that Scotland couldn't be independent. Of course it could be independent, but there would be a price attached to that. Now, Brexit votes showed that voters are willing to to pay that price. But would they be willing to pay a price as large as that which Brexit now implies? 
Now, Nicola Sturgeon has said that she's going to be having a kind of slow reveal of the case for independence coming up with a speech a month. And she wants to get to the difficult things like what would the currency be, who would pay the pensions, what currency would the pensions be paid into. Those are the questions which they would really struggle to answer. And the idea of a hard border with England is, of course, absurd. And you don't have to think about it very long to think, well, really, the upside to independence would have to be pretty big to erect such an obstacle and trade with the rest of the country. So I think that there's a more of a consensus now, but Sturgeon isn't serious because even she knows that the case for independence right now is not winnable. James, do you think the government is more relaxed about independence than it has been uh, for a few years now? I think the government has settled on a strategy, which is to just say no. They are not going to grant a Section 30 order. And I think they are more confident than they were previously that the Supreme Court will, would not be prepared to accept a, a referendum, even if it was kind of depicted as, as advisory. So I think there is, a, there is a kind of strategy. I also think there is a kind of view that the UK government constantly talking about its worries about an independence referendum were not helpful. And I think that, you know, Mark McInnes, the former head of the Scottish Tories now in Downing Street, has instilled some discipline to, to stop people from speculating about it. I, I think the, the, the fundamentally, to my mind, the biggest question in the long term is this, right? One, I think that obviously Brexit gave a short-term boost to the cause of Scottish independence because most Scots voted to stay in the EU. But, as Fraser said, it does complicate the question long term. But I think the other question is that... Scots of your generation, Katie, are more inclined to the pro-independence cause. And there is this sometimes sotto voce declared by, by supporters of independence at this, this, this point, which is, you know, but the demographics are in their favour, by which they mean that, that the elderly tend to be more pro-union as younger voters come into the system. And remember that, that they are more pro-independence. So the question is, can you turn that support for independence among the young around can you ensure that when people are turning whether it's 16 or 18 they are more inclined to the unionist point of view can you deal with this demographic problem that the unionist side have and the, there are so many issues with this now which is why i think most scots don't believe nicholas sturgeon they know she's got her troops to keep happy something like 120,000 members now they sign up because they're expecting to be called for battle and they don't want to hear but the battle isn't going to happen after the last referendum Sturgeon said privately that the support for independence would have to be 60% in the polls before they would risk it again because if you have another attempt and it fails as happened with Quebec then the whole project collapses now that is why I think unlike James I would be more tempted to give Nicola Sturgeon the referendum that she wants because I think there would be a case of settling it once and for all but by the way, I'm in a tiny minority of unionists who, who think this. But there are so many problems in Scotland that are be, not being addressed because all the political focus is going on the border. I would love for that issue to be put to bed in Scotland, as it has been in Canada and Quebec, and for us all to move on, because God knows there are far more important things to be talking about. And Fraser, just on that, don't you think there's a chance that it perhaps could be in the coming years, um, if we end up in a situation which is not impossible, some people think it's quite probable, where there is no majority at the next election, perhaps Labour, the largest party, but fail to have a majority, have to do deals to go in government or in support. You could see a scenario where a referendum was back on the table. You could. You could see a scenario where SNP say, we will go into coalition with you, but only if you agree to our referendum. 
Now, for that, you have to believe, of course, that Nicola Sturgeon actually wants a referendum, which right now I don't. I think she has to pretend, I think, is a giant bluff. And she knows, I think, that the odds are she would lose that referendum. That's why a good chunk of me just really hopes that her bluff is called before too long. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, James. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the next 12 weeks of The Spectator, in print and online, for just £12. And we'll send you a copy of Associate Editor Douglas Murray's new book, The War on the West, worth £20, absolutely free. Join the party today at spectator.co.uk forward slash Murray.